Well, good morning. I've, uh, you know, a drummer never goes anywhere without his drums. And uh, this is my security blanket. It actually uh, is uh, part of a, a lesson I want to give you this morning about the anatomy of a snare drum. I know that when you were thinking about coming to church this morning, this is what you were hoping for. The anatomy of a snare drum. Uh, unlike all the other drums, say, in a drum set like that, a snare drum always has two heads on it. It has a top head that's usually hit by drumsticks, and it has a bottom head. And the bottom head's very thin, and it's rarely ever struck by a drumstick. Snare drums come in different sizes as well. This is called a piccolo snare, and uh, it would be used for, like, for orchestral work, or it would be used for jazz, where you'd have a higher-pitched snare than the snare that's up there, which is much deeper and more for uh, rock kind of music. Uh, one of the things about a snare drum is, that makes it very unique, is that it has this mesh, this wire mesh here on the bottom. And when there's a little mechanism that allows you to uh, bring the wire mesh, otherwise it just sounds like a tom-tom. But if you bring the wire mesh up, all of a sudden it sounds like a snare drum. Now, isn't that fascinating? Uh, this, this, the, the thing that a lot of people don't know about uh, snare drums, even some drummers, is that if you're going to be playing a snare drum, you want to have the mesh run perpendicular, or, or per perpendicular from your body, running out this way from your body. If you have it on the sides and you try to do a press roll, it, um, it's not as direct as if you try to do it here. You can hear it's just much more intense because, you know, this reminds me of when I was uh, playing for Bob Hope once. And uh, he was on stage, and he told a joke, and, and he went into a golf swing, you know. And I'm in the pit on the set, and I thought, there's a sound that goes with this. And I've seen it on the Johnny Carson show. And so uh, he started to swing his golf club, and I went, and I got about here. And I realized this is the wrong sound. And I went, and I finished. And Bob Hope turned around and said, and that's how my balls go, too. <laughs> it was supposed to be, you know, that was the sound, but I missed it completely. So, there's a lot more I could say about a snare drum and the anatomy of a snare drum, but I, I, I think that's enough. Uh, do you have any questions? <laughs> Good. I didn't think so. Um, the thing about this anatomy of a snare drum is that I haven't taught you how to play a snare drum. I haven't taught you any rudiments, so we didn't talk about flams, or we didn't talk about paradiddles, we didn't talk about how to do single stroke rolls, or double stroke rolls, or press rolls. I showed you a press roll, but we didn't really talk about how to play the snare drum. All I provided for you was an anatomy of the snare drum. All I did was explain how the snare drum works. So it is when we now look at uh, wisdom this morning, we're not going to look at an anatomy of a snare drum, but we are going to look at an anatomy of wisdom. 
I'm not going to tell you exactly, because the passage we're in, in Proverbs 4, isn't going to tell you exactly how to be wise or how to, to manage your heart, but we're going to talk about what wisdom looks like. We're going to talk about what the heart does. So it's an anatomy of wisdom, and it's an anatomy of the heart. And then when Pastor Bart speaks in the, in the weeks that are following, he'll fill in all the content of that wisdom, or at least a lot of the content of the wisdom. Now, the thing about Hebrews, when they talk about Proverbs or anatomy or anything, really, they speak in duality and balance. That's what I like to call it. They speak in parallelisms. Everything has uh, something to offset the other. So you have the light that rules the day, and you have the light that rules the night. Or, you know, we see it in pyramids where they have symmetrical shapes and then they're also built in a certain structure around other pyramids. Or maybe if you were to go to uh, Loyola Beach in San Diego, you'd see this pier and there are parallel pilings on all the way down the pier. Or if you went to London, you'd be able to see the Tower Bridge. And notice there isn't one tower, but there are two towers on the Tower Bridge. Duality and balance. Or if you were to go to Westminster Abbey, you'd find two steeples, not just one steeple. Or if you went to India and you saw the Taj Mahal, you'd see that there are all these parallel turrets that go up and parallel domes around it. Duality and balance everywhere. Or you could go to Malaysia. And in Malaysia, they had the Patronus Towers. And the Patronus Towers, again, are parallel, the tallest towers in the world. Or you could go to Australia, and you could see at this opera house how there are parallel shells, so to speak, on each side of the opera house. Or even if you looked at a tree, you could see how the tree has balance and duality on both sides of it. Even spider webs have balance and duality all around them. You'll see them especially in the fall, early in the morning on, you know, on their fences. Or if you just look at us, I mean, we have two feet and we have two legs. We have two arms and we have two hands and we have two ears. And we have two eyes and we have two nostrils. There's duality and balance in our own design. And if you go inside, even the brain has two hemispheres. So the Hebrews thought this way all the time. If they were to put up uh, in their Hebrew and I know you're not all Hebrew scholars this morning, but I put it there for the fun of it. This says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And they divide this verse, which isn't poetic, but they divide it in two. They say, Barashit, bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. And then they say, et hashemayim, et ha'eretz. The heavens and the earth. That's the second part. And when you get into Hebrew poetry, like Proverbs, like in your Bibles, if you were to look into Proverbs chapter 4, you'd see that there are these parallels that go on, and they even often indent the second half of the parallel. They'll say, listen, my son, and accept my words. And then the second half will be something else. The second half might be the same as the first half. The second half might add to it, like this verse does, where it says, that your years of life may be many for you. The second half may be the opposite of the first half, but they think in duality and balance. 
So is it this morning as we're looking at Proverbs chapter 4 in verses uh, 10 through 21. They're going to talk about, the writer of Proverbs is going to talk about two hearts, or really he's going to talk about two ways, and then he's going to talk about two hearts because they think this way. They want us to, to visualize this. As they talk about the two ways, they're going to talk about the way of wisdom, that's one way, and then the way of the wicked. They're contrasting to one another, and then he'll give a conclusion, and in the conclusion, he'll talk about both of those ways as part of the conclusion in Proverbs chapter 4, picking up in verse 10. So there are two paths. This is kind of Robert Frost's two paths diverged in a wood. It's all over. It's everywhere in literature and in our own way of thinking. So he begins by saying, hear my son and accept my words. When he's speaking, he's speaking in a relationship. He's not, wisdom isn't coming individually only as I'm on a path. It's, it's as I'm with a father or, or, you know, a mother is with a daughter or a father is with a daughter. It's, it's about a community, like this community. This is how it comes. You don't get it all on your own. Others have something to share with you. So he says, hear my son in particular and accept my word. So it isn't enough to hear. He wants us to internalize this in some way. He wants us to embrace it, to accept what it is that he's saying. In our neighborhood, we recently had... Uh, a three-way stop put up at the bottom of my street. And I have some dear neighbors who are here with us, and they know what I'm talking about, this three-way stop. And I think everyone who sees these stop signs, they know what they mean. Stop. Bring your vehicle to a complete stop and then proceed. But I see it all the time when I'm walking my dog. I'm coming down to the bottom of the street and people are going through the stop sign at 20 or 40 miles an hour. They aren't stopping at all. And when I asked one person why that was and the person said, well, you know, I lived here before the stop signs were here. <laughs> and so I don't have any need to stop for those stop signs. I'm grandfathered under the old rules. Well, that's exactly what he doesn't want us to do as he writes about this in Proverbs. He says, hear my son and accept. Accept, embrace, internalize my words to you. Then he gives us the second half of the verse. That the years of your life may be many for you. That's the reason. This is about life. You all know this scene from Fiddler. If I were to say, to life, to life. <laughs> to life, to life. L'chaim is what they say. No one's going to say that Hebrew. Maybe you don't even know about Fiddler. Well, this is a scene in Fiddler where they do that. To life, to life, l'chaim. La is two, and chaim is the word for life. And that's what he says. This is so you might have life. Life in terms of its quality now. Life in terms of an abundance of life. Life in terms of what is good for you. And also that you might have many years, a quantity of life. Many years of life. This will make a difference 
for how you and I live. So he says, I instruct you in the way of wisdom. The word for instruct is the word that you've probably heard, Torah. I give you Torah. I give you the written law on the way of wisdom. And the way is a a pathway, a way in which we walk. Even in that primer video, notice that they focused on the feet, the way that they were walking. I give you, he says, instruct you in the way of wisdom. Now this word for wisdom is about having skill at living. Being skillful at what you do. There's a difference between knowledge and skill. Now, these chisels, I own one of these chisels, and I know what a chisel is supposed to do. You're supposed to be able to, like if you're going to put a new doorknob into your door, you're supposed to be able to chisel along the side so you can put the strike plate flush along the side so that when the door opens, it doesn't hit the strike plate. So I took my chisel and I started, and I'm telling you, it looked like a beaver attacked my door when I was done. I had no skill. I destroyed the door. Uh, But luckily, the strike plate got in there and covered most of it up. I had no skill. That's how we feel when we have children. It's like the child comes and you're saying, where's the manual? I have no idea what to do with this child. Uh, When I had uh, our daughter, we brought her home and uh, we adopted. We brought her home and the instructions, they gave us a little sheet about how to bathe her. And they said, you know, hold her like a football. And I thought, you don't know what you're doing when you have a child. But then when you have others, two or three, you still wish you had the model or the manual for that particular model because they're all different. But nonetheless, you have some skill, some wisdom about how to raise a child. Well, that's what he's talking about. I instruct you in the way of wisdom. I lead you along what he says are straight paths. And the word is plural for paths, straight tracks. He means that this is well-trodden. This is well-disciplined. What I'm going to share with you, the nature of wisdom, the anatomy of wisdom is this is a way that many have gone. You're You're not on a lone ranger trip on this. I'm instructing you in the paths that have been well-trodden, is what he says. Verse 12, when you walk, your step will not be hampered. And if you run, you will not stumble. The idea of walking is really you're, you're... intentionally going somewhere. You're moving with vigor to get wherever it is you want to go. The word is actually marching, as though you're marching to get to your destination. And when you're marching or when you're moving, he says, things aren't going to tie your feet down. Things aren't going to hamper you. Things aren't going to hold you back from that destination that you're trying to reach. And then he says, when you're feeling brave and you start to run, And you know the definition of running, both feet are off the ground at some point. It's much more risky. He says, you won't stumble. You know, I can't resist to talk about running. Um, He brought it up. (laughs) So 
a couple years ago, early in the morning, it was going to rain, and I wanted to get a long run in, so I parked my car over at Brookwood Mall and started my long run loop, and it's like 4 o'clock in the morning because the rain is coming. Runners are crazy this way. They do these things. And so I'm by myself at 4 o'clock in the morning. I start this long run, and I get onto Jemison Trail. And I don't know if you've been on Jemison Trail in the dark, but you can't see the trail. This, this is actually a picture of Jemison Trail, and there is a little light here, but I couldn't see the trail. But I thought, well, I kind of know where it goes, and uh, so I'll be okay. So I'm running along the trail, and all of a sudden, my foot, my left foot just trips off the trail and it turns and I go flying. And you know, I don't run very fast, but it still takes a long time to stop. <laughs> That's what I found. And so uh, I get up and I think, well, this is a stinger. I'll be okay. And I just continue to run and I run down Jemison Trail and I run up Overbrook and I go into uh, Crestline Village and I run down Dexter Avenue and I get about as far away from my car as I possibly can and I realize I can't even walk. I'm in so much pain. That's what happens when you stumble. I had to walk back to Crestline Village and I met a friend who drove me back to my car so I could go home. I was going to show you a picture of my ankle, but some of you have had breakfast. It won't be good. <laughs> so he says, the point of wisdom, though, is so that won't happen. And the problem with stumbling isn't that you fall. It's that you just don't know all the repercussions of that fall. My ankle still hurts, and it's years later. You just don't know. So he says, hold on to instruction. Do not stop. Guard it, for it is your life. Like an athlete, he wants us to have a, a regimen of diet and exercise and training. Hold on to it. Do not stop. Don't drop the ball, because your life is at risk here. So this was the way of wisdom. Now he's going to compare this to the way of the wicked in their parallelism. He goes on to say, all these verbs, he says, don't, do not enter, do not walk, avoid, do not pass over, turn aside, pass by. I mean, how many ways could he say it? You don't want to go there. And he's trying to say, I think, it's very luring. It's very tempting to go there. That's why he gives us all these parallels. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Don't even start on it. Not only that, he says, and do not take strides in the way of evil ones. Don't go onto the path and certainly don't go walking on the path. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn aside from going upon it and pass on. Why? What's the problem? Well, he'll tell us why. He says in verse 16... And he'll give us two images of the wicked at night and the wicked during the day. 
He says, for they are robbed of sleep till they forge evil. And their sleep is torn away unless they make someone stumble. They can't even get to sleep unless they do evil. They're plotting. It's like evil is their sedative. And during the day, he says, for they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violent acts. It is their nourishment during the day. They are addicted. They are evil-holics. This drawing by William Blake, I think, pictures what they do. This is Cain and Abel. Abel. Cain and Abel from Genesis chapter 4. You know, the, Cain is lying dead. Eve is bent over her son. In the back, Adam is just horrified. And Cain, he's wild. I tried to think of ways in which we brush up against evil. I mean, there are obvious pictures like the Nazis in and you would say, oh, don't associate with the Nazis. And, and they live up to that title. Nazis were very evil. I mean, even at the end of the war, when they should have put their energy into either defending themselves or negotiating for peace, they put all their energy into the final solution of exterminating the Jews. So I'm not so worried about that. Most of us think, well... Yeah, evil. It's that other political party. They're evil. I need to stay away from them. And, and you know, the other political party is always the party that you don't identify with, whatever that evil party is. But I don't think that's really it at all. I think this is closer. It's the hatred we have in our home. It's the inability to resolve tension with one another. It's the harm that we do to one another. It's the, that temptation that... You think that that other person outside of this relationship is going to bring you life, and they are not. But you're willing to risk everything in the plotting, in the planning. So he summarizes it then in verses 18 and 19. Now the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. The way of the wicked is the darkness. They do not know what trips them up. They don't even see it coming. But when you and I are out, if you're out early in the morning, maybe it's dark and you're out and you're walking and everything's black and white and then all of a sudden some light begins to come over the eastern horizon and everything kind of turns that sepia tone where there's a little brown color to it like in this picture. You can see more. You can't see color, but you can see more. And then as you're out longer, all of a sudden the grass turns green and the leaves turn green. Then you can go in the more treacherous pathways, the more difficult pathways. But the wicked are in the dark. They don't even know what causes them to stumble. 
Jesus said it this way. There are, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. He goes on, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Why wouldn't we want to go in the light? It's our life at stake here. So having talked about the, the ways of wisdom and uh, the, the two ways in particular of wisdom, he now will talk about the two hearts. And when he does it, he doesn't do it in quite, uh, in such an obvious way as he did with the two ways, the writer of Proverbs, but he's still going to talk about the subtleness of the two hearts. And he's going to do it in this kind of a structure where he says you need to pay attention to the interior life that you have and then you need to guard the heart. That's going to be the center of what he has to say. And then you need to pay attention to your exterior life because it's going to reflect back on your interior life. I call it an anatomy because he uses all these words. He talks about the ear and the eyes and the heart and the body and the mouth and the foot. But those things have an impact on what's going on inside. It's as though what we're doing on the outside is being attended to, in, attended to on the inside and the two are touching one another. And what happens on the outside may influence what happens on the inside. And what happens on the inside will always influence what happens on the outside. So he begins by saying in this second Section verse 20, my son, pay attention to my words, turn your ear to my sayings. So you can tell we're in another lesson, my son, and then he says the same kind of thing. I want you to pay attention, and then he says, you know, turn your ear, incline your ear. I want you to listen to what it is I'm trying to say. He goes on and says, do not allow them to depart from before your eyes and keep them in your heart. It's as though... These words that he's saying, this wisdom is trying to sneak away. And he says, don't let them get away from you. You need to keep your eyes on them. And then he says the way to do that is to keep them in your heart. For Israel, when they, had, uh, when they came out of Egypt, they had the tabernacle. And they were all camped around the tabernacle. And then inside the tabernacle, at the very center of it, was the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant was the law. Well, that's what it's like for us, he says. Just as the law was in the center of the tabernacle, you need to keep these words of wisdom in your heart. Now, heart doesn't always mean the same thing for us that it meant for them. For heart, we think of Valentine's Day. You know, it's my emotions. It's how I feel about you. It's all the softness that I have. But for them, it's different. It's a different kind of meaning. We don't have a word for it in English. But it means 
the heart, but it means also the mind, the intellect, and it talks about the reasoning that you and I make, our motivation for doing things, our will to do things. It's all of that wrapped in one. So if someone, you know, isn't very discerning about life, it says in the Old Testament that they lack heart. Or if someone turns their back on instruction, it says that they can have a hard heart. So as he speaks to us, he wants us with our intellect and our emotion and our will to put all this instruction inside, this complex part of who we are. Why? He says, for they are life to those who find them and a remedy for one's whole body, one's whole flesh, literally, it says. Not only are they life, he says, you know, years of life in verse 10. Now, he says, they are life itself. Chaim. This is your life I'm talking about. And when you've gone off the track and you've caused all kinds of disasters to happen, these words will bring healing. They'll restore your life. I've known those who wrestle with alcohol, drug addiction, sex addiction, addiction, running their lives off the edge of the cliff. The disaster is sometimes enormous. And it feels like there is no way back. But the writer of Proverbs says, oh yeah, these words will give you a way back. They'll heal what's been broken. Oh, it may take time. You know, forgiveness means that I'm not going to make you pay for what you did. You deserve to pay for what you did. But I'm not going to make you pay for what you did. Restoration means I'm going to trust you again, but it's going to take time. You have to earn it. You have to be vulnerable with the one whose trust you've broken. They have to be allowed to see everything on your computer. They have to be allowed to see and access your phone. They need to be able to see your, your email and know what's in there. They need to be able to track you when you're driving somewhere, so they know where you're going. And over time, as you follow this and you become vulnerable, there is a healing that comes for you and for others in your life. Now he comes to the climax. Guard the heart. Verse 23. 23, above every watch, guard your heart. Above every kind of protection you can think of, any kind of guarding you do, he says, you and I need to guard our hearts. It's like they're in prison. And you know, what's funny is... Um, it's hard to know what we're guarding them from. 
Are we protecting our hearts from what is out there? Are, or are we guarding the heart so that it doesn't act out? Why am I guarding the heart? I think it's both. And it's the second, the plottings of the heart, the intentions of the heart that are emphasized in the parallelism. He says, above every watch, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. What's going on in here and in here determines what you and I do. Everything flows out from it. So we have to guard it even against its own plotting. Say, I don't know that I have to guard my heart. It's not that bad. I'd like to give you an example from your hearts, but I don't have any. I don't know your hearts. Aren't you glad? <laughs> so I'll tell you a story about mine. I was just young. I was, I was like third or fourth grade. And I can remember sitting in the bathtub one day in the summer and thinking, I'm going to go to the store and I'm going to steal some records, 45s. Anyone know what a 45 is? A couple of you do. Anyway, anyone know what a record is? <laughs> it's like a CD, only bigger. And what's a CD? I know. <laughs> anyway, I was going to steal these things, these records. And what I was going to do is go in. This was my planning as a kid. I'm going to go in and I'm going to get these magic markers, which I'll steal. And then I'm going to steal the records. And then I'm going to put my initials on the records. DM, DM, all over these little records. And I did. I went to the store. I stole the magic markers. I stole the records. I put my initials on them. And then, you know, they say criminals are not very smart because they always return back to the scene of the crime. I walked back in the store with the records in my hand because I thought my initials are on them. So I walked back into the record rack, and one of the clerks comes up to me and he says, uh, may I see what's in your hand? I said, oh, these are mine. My initials are on them. He said, well, that's interesting because the sleeves to all those records are right there on the counter. At which point, I dropped the records and I ran. And he ran after me. I think this is when my running began. <laughs> And he ran after me, and then he tripped, and I thought, oh, I got away. It was so great, but somebody in the store recognized me, and the phone rang. This is just a kid's heart. A kid's heart. We are all fallen. What that means is that we're not as bad as we could be, but it has affected everything. It's like we're glorious, we have the image of God, but we're glorious ruins. Guard the heart above all else, for from it flows life. Then he talks about the exterior again. The reason he does this We'll do this very quickly. The reason he does this 
is because the exterior shows what's going on in the interior. He says, keep a crooked mouth far from you and devious lips put far from you. Keep a crooked mouth. The crooked is the word that's used for deformed. So when you're talking about something, don't deform it. Don't change it. Don't, don't give some permutation that has no connection with the truth. You know, I went fishing and it was this big. He says, don't do it. And devious means exactly that. I, I'm, I'm being tricky. I'm, I'm, I'm not shooting straight when I'm talking to you. He says, tell the, this is how Eugene, or not Eugene, but uh, Jordan Peterson said it. He says, uh, how did he say it? Tell the truth, or at least don't lie. You say, well, don't lie? I should never lie? I'm in church. I guess the answer to that is yes. Well, I, I don't know. You, know, you say, well, Dave, what if, I, what if I was living in occupied Amsterdam and the Nazis came to my door and I was housing the Frank family up on the third floor and the Nazis came and knocked on my door and said, are you housing any Jews? Does this mean I'm supposed to say, yes, they're up on the third floor behind the bookshelf. Just move it to the side and you'll get to them. Remember the way of wisdom literature. Bart has talked about this. Gabe has talked about this. It is not exhaustive in its scope. It doesn't say everything there is about truth-telling in this particular passage. But it does say this. Your truth-telling reflects where your heart is and has an impact on your heart. As you and I fudge and, and change and lie... Our heart's listening. And all of a sudden, we adopt that way of thinking. So he says, let your eyes look straight ahead. Let your eyelids look straight in front of you. You need to watch where you're going to put your feet. You need to watch the life you're going to take. And he finally finalizes this by saying, watch the track of your foot and all of your ways be steadfast. You know, the good man, Jesus says, out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. It comes out of us. He goes on to say, watch what you're looking at every step you're taking. Make sure you're on the right path. That's our part to play in what's occurring. Jesus said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. The eye is the lamp of the body. It's like that which shines inside of us. So then, if your eye is clearer, your whole body is full of light. He says, but if your eye is bad or evil, it's the, the, the evil eye that he's talking about, that you know how the eye is. We never get enough. We're always looking for something else. Always looking for something else. If your eye is evil, looking for something else, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, 
how great is the darkness. What we do has an impact on who we are. It's our life. So he closes by saying, watch the track for your foot. Let all your ways be steadfast. Be firm in your conviction. Predecide what you're going to do before you do it. I have a predecision. If I'm on the computer and I'm searching for something, you know how this works, or you're on social media, and all of a sudden something catches my eye that my eye shouldn't be looking at. My predecision is I get up from my computer. Because I can't trust my heart. I can't trust the plottings that go on. So he says, watch the track of your foot. Let all your ways be steadfast. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. There is a way to go, he says. There aren't multiple ways. It's not like, oh, I, here's an extreme, and here's an extreme, and I, I need to find the, the media, you know, the medium way to go. No. There's only God's way or the way of the wicked. Don't turn to the left or the right. And you know how it happens. It isn't like we wake up one day and say, oh, I'm going to go do this horrible thing. You know, we slouch toward it kind of slouching toward Gomorrah. You don't get there all at once. So what does it look like? How does it look when somebody is taking care of wisdom? Someone is watching the heart. There's this book by a, a physician. His name is Richard Seltzer. And he tells the story briefly of a, a patient he had post-operative. I think it shows us what it looks like. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted and palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. The surgeon had followed the, with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor from her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me. Private. Who are they, I ask myself? He in this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at and touch each other so generously, greedily. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say, it will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I, I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. 
All at once I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a God. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her that their kiss still works. I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals, and I hold my breath and let the wonder in. Our Father and our God, we know that it is only through your Spirit that we can walk in the ways of wisdom. We also know that these metaphorical paths are actually the ways in which we talk to each other when we leave here this morning, the thoughts we privately entertain, the decisions we make when our lives are in disarray, and the plans we make when we open our eyes in the morning. Oh Lord, help us to understand in our hearts that these are the paths of life or death and want to walk in the way of life. For your sake, for the sake of others, and for our sake, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.